listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And on the line, we have a caller. Caller, are you there? Hello. Who are you, caller? Who are you? Uh, my name is Eve Lazarus. I'm uh, a writer in Vancouver. I write history and, and crime books. And we began with my own band. I never play my own band, The Evaporators. In fact, I think this is one of the only times ever, in fact, it is the only time that we have ever begun, we being the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, with my own band. But the reason I played that song was, it's titled, What Was the Name of the Song We Played? Milkshake Murder. Milkshake Murder. Did I get it right? Because you were author of the book Murder by Milkshake. So people were listening to the lyrics. Did I get it right? Did I get it right? You got it right. I'm wondering when you recorded it. Well, I was inspired to record that song by Aaron Chapman. So that actually came out probably in about 2012, 2013. But I think the genesis of the song probably went back to like 2010 or 2009. So had you heard of the murder then or it was the first time when you heard Aaron's song? Uh, Aaron Chapman. Who, who is Aaron Chapman and what is the murder? Well, maybe a little background if we could, Eve. Um, well, the murder, the murder happened in 1965. Do, do you want me to tell you a bit about it? Well, I guess what I was saying was like, I guess I heard Aaron talk about the murder, the murder. Oh. And then I based the song on his song, kind of. And that's how I found out about it. How did you find out about the murder? Well, I first heard about it all back in the 1990s um, when I was at the Vancouver Police Museum. And I was just in, intrigued by this murder um, that had such sensational headings, you know, headlines and, and articles and, and all of that. And I'd never really heard of it before I saw it there. And uh, it just made me, you know, want to dig a bit deeper into it. And the name of the book is Murder by Milkshake. And you are Eve Lazarus. And the protagonist in the book, how do you pronounce his name? Rene? Rene? Rene. Uh, can we say Rene? Well, you can, but he, he used to apparently say Rene. Rene. Uh, that's what the family called him. His daughter knew him as Rene, uh, but he used to go by Rene, uh, Rene or whatever, you know, Rene Castellani, whatever sounded good. And he actually was involved with radio, CKNW radio. We, of course, are CITR radio. But this book isn't just about radio. It isn't just about the murder. It's kind of a bit about Vancouver in the 1960s, isn't it? Very much so. That was one of the, the, the reasons I wanted to write it. I really wanted to sort of do a deep dive into the 1960s. It was such this, you know, era of this incredible change. And uh, I thought that would be really interesting to set a murder in that period. Now, for the book, I just basically, what is the book about? What is the milkshake murder? Did I get it right in the song? If people were listening to CITR and they heard the evaporators do milkshake murder, what did they hear? What did I explain? And what is the murder all about? What happened? Well, essentially, in 1965, Rene Castellani, who was a CKNW um, promoter, basically, he did these outrageous stunts for the station. He'd been married for 19 years to Esther, who was 40 years old, and they had an 11-year-old daughter named Janine. Well, Rene fell in love with a 25-year-old 
uh, CKNW receptionist, Lolly, and decided to murder his wife with arsenic in her milkshake and food so he could marry Lolly. And that is a premise of murder by milkshake by Eve Lazarus. And Eve, what is the genesis of this book? Had it ever been done before? Like Aaron Chapman told me about this, and he wrote a song about this, and the Evaporators have written a song about it. I don't think there are any other songs about the milkshake murder you were saying, right? Not that I've heard. Um, which doesn't mean they're not, but, but nothing that's come up. But I didn't know about yours either. So, you know, there might be something else out there. Had this ever been done before in book form? Like, where did you get the idea for this actual book? Like, there is, like, Sylvia Barrett did the Arsenic Milkshake book. What is your idea of the book? Like, had this ever been done before? Yes, it had been several times, in not in complete book form, but as part of, you know, a book, um, Susan McNichol did it as part of uh, BC Murders, and I think um, Dead Ends did a chapter on it. There's been, you know, a few. I've written about it. I wrote about it in my first book at Home with History, um, but I wrote about it through the house where most of the poisoning took place. Uh, I've talked about it on radio at times, and I, I never considered writing a book about it and, until a couple of things happened last year. Who came up with the name The Milkshake Murders? Who came up with that name? Uh, I don't know. Like The Milkshake Murders, because a lot of other times it isn't always called The Milkshake Murders. Like, who coined the name Milkshake Murders? I was curious, because your book is called Murder by Milkshake. The other book is kind of like Arsenic Milkshake and Other Tales. You know, I really don't know. It could have been the Police Museum. Their exhibit's called Milkshake Murder. Um, it may have been one of the, the, you know, there's so many newspapers writing about this nationally and internationally. It could have come from any of those. Uh, I'm not sure where it originated. Susan McNichol, she also gave you some research and interviews. What is her role in the book? Oh, my God. Yeah, she was amazing. Uh, she had wanted to write a full book. As I mentioned, she'd written a chapter about it in her book, BC Murders, and she'd wanted to, to write a, a whole book about it. And she'd got um, a, a fair way along, and then ill health prevented her from continuing. And so this was about 15 years ago. And when I met Janine, who's the daughter, Janine Castellani, um, Susan had given her the tapes that she'd done and newspaper clippings and, and various research material. And when I met Janine last year and Janine told me about this, I, I'd phoned up Susan and said, look, you know, are you planning to do anything on this? Because I don't want to step on your toes. And she said, no, no, have everything. And I thought, my God, what an amazing, generous thing that was to do. You know, as a writer, it's pretty hard to hand over your tapes and things like that. So that definitely um, made a big difference in deciding to do the book, that uh, these tapes of people that were now dead um, still existed and had never been listened to again. They they were still on the old-fashioned tape form and I had to spend a long time digitizing them and hours and hours and hours and hours transcribing and it was totally worth it. That's really nice that she gave you all that material because usually writers hate each other, don't they? They're oh. like comedians. They hate each other. <laughs> no, I think we work pretty closely together. I mean, take Aaron. You, you mentioned Aaron. We've collaborated on quite a few things. We've um, sh We share a publisher. We promote each other's work and talk, you know, do talks together. And, you know, I know that a lot of our, the true crime writers around town, we're, we're pretty close. How easy is it, Eve Lazarus, to get arsenic now? How easy is it to do a milkshake murder now? I don't think 
it would be easy at all. And, you know, it's weird because in the 1700s and 1800s, killing someone by arsenic or getting rid of an inconvenient relative or something like that was pretty easy, you know, that, you know, that was in rat poison and weed killer and all that sort of stuff. And they ended up bringing a law in in the 1850s that it had to be carefully monitored and um, it had to be written down and you knew who had bought the arsenic so they could stop bumping off people. But this apparently this law didn't translate to Canada because it seems like in the 60s everybody had also triox under their kitchen sink for killing rats or killing weeds or or whatever and it was quite easy to get now um, I don't think it would be at all I haven't tried though how come Eve is it so easy to get the stuff now when there was never any act in Canada in other words how come there was no arsenic act of 1851 in Canada I don't know. I guess it hadn't been a problem here. I guess people were not bumping off or getting caught. Maybe they just were better at getting not getting caught. How did you win over all these people? Like Esther's sister, Gloria. How did you win over people? How do you win over people? Because here are you writing a book and there was all these people to win over. How did you win over these people? Was this whole thing caused by divorce laws? Divorce, sorry, divorce laws. Like, what I was saying is, how did you win over all these people? How did you win over them? Like, why did they trust you? With, like, a murder, some people don't even want to talk about it. How come they trusted you? Well, Gloria was one of, actually, Susan's interviews. She'd interviewed her about 15 years ago. Um, she's still alive, but in very bad health, so I wasn't able to get to talk to her at all. So that was huge, having those interviews of, of their early life, which was pretty brutal when you read the the first couple of chapters of the book. Um, But everybody else, Janine, the daughter, and she's the reason why I was interested in writing the book. Uh, She came to my book launch for Blood, Sweat and Fear, which was ironically at the Vancouver Police Museum last year. And we'd set up this cash bar in the autopsy suite, which is still, you know, all decked out as the autopsy suite. And it's next to the morgue. And Esther's exhibit of the murder is in the morgue. So there was this kind of surreal sort of atmosphere happening. And in walked Janine and her daughter and introduced herself. Um, And then we sort of agreed to meet the following week. And she really wanted to talk about the murder. She has never talked publicly about a mother's murder in over 53 years. And she'd never been able to sort of grieve a mother. And she really, really wanted all this to come out. And I was so interested in telling it from her point of view. And I'm always interested when I write about a murder, the, the least interesting thing about the process is the actual murder to me. It's what happens. It's what happens to the people. And I really wanted to give Esther a voice. When, when people think about this murder, it's always about Rini and what it's sort of over-the-top psychopathy was. And it's not about Esther. And I kind of wanted to change that a bit. How is this related to divorce laws? That's what I was kind of getting at. Like, in other words, was this whole thing, the murder, was it because of the divorce laws? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, my question. Like, why not just get a divorce? Uh, Why go to all this trouble? But when I started researching the divorce laws, it was really, really difficult to get one until 1968. So we're talking 1965 here. And you had to prove adultery. 
both parties had to agree to it. And there was a lot of public shaming that went on. You um, had to write, write this up in the newspaper and two newspapers printed all the you know, graphic details of your marriage breakdown and who you were having an affair with and, and all of that sort of stuff. And um, a lot of people sort of um, got around this. Like, for instance, Esther's sister Gloria, who you mentioned before, just married someone else at the same time. So committing bigamy was apparently a frequent way of getting out of things. And and so was murder. How about the white spot? Was it a white spot milkshake that killed Esther? You know, we don't know. Um, she loved vanilla milkshakes from white spot, and she loved milkshakes, and that was the era. But when I talked to scientists and toxicologists and stuff like that, it was never proven. Everything he was convicted on was by circumstantial evidence. But when I talked to these scientists, I said, well, you know, what, what do you think? And they said, well, it'd be a no-brainer. If she liked milkshakes, that would be a great delivery system because arsenic has no flavor, it virtually has no taste and smell, and it would be a great way of getting it into her. But it was never proven that that was the way it got in. Why do you think the white spot was called the white spot? I've always wondered that. Why is white spot called the white spot? You know, that's a really good idea, a really good question, isn't it? I have no idea. The white spot. Could it's have, kind of weird when you found it out like that. Well, yeah, especially like for Americans, like, come on, eat at the white spot. Uh, it could be that their logo was a chicken and the chicken, I guess, shits. And they were famous for the chicken fixings, you know, at the white spot. It also made me think, which white spot do you think Rene picked up the milkshake at? Which location? I reckon it was the original one on 57th because they lived in Kerrisdale. But also aristocratic too? They had milkshakes? Yeah, and uh, that was near the hospital and near the BOMAC sign, which figures prominently in in the case. One of the people that Rinne loved was, of course, the secretary from CKNW, but she was also a hula dancer? She was a hula dancer? Apparently, yeah. Janine remembers, uh, and Don, her, her son, that she used to teach hula dancing. I think this was something that was big in the 60s. And Esther, she lived on Burnaby Street? Was it on Burnaby Street she lived at? No, no. Um, Esther was the wife. She lived with Rene and Kerrisdale. But the Lulons, they lived on Burnaby Street. I know that there was a mention of Burnaby Street in your book. because I'm sorry. Yes, in the early days, you're right. In the West End, they had a bakery and they lived on Burnaby Street. You're quite right. And made me really excited that he lived on Burnaby Street because also mentioned in your book is Glenn McDonald. Yes. Who smoked 60 cigarettes a day? Oh, God, I wish I'd met him. He's one of the characters from Vancouver's past I really would have liked to have interviewed. What a character. And he was a coroner, and he wrote that book, How Come I'm Dead? Yep. And he actually pointed out that at 1310 Burnaby Street, Errol Flynn died. <gasps> That's right. So here is the milkshake murderess and Errol Flynn living on the same street. Uh, yeah, different time periods, because that would have been what, late. When did he die? 1959, I think, Errol Flynn. Yeah, it was pretty early. But was she? when did she move to Burnaby Street? Well, she would have lived there when they were in her teens. So she was born in 1925, probably sort of late for, before she was married, I guess. And I think they lived there as husband and wife for a while. So, so it's probably mid to late 40s. 
But I like to think there is a chance that the milkshake murderer met Errol Flynn on Burnaby Street in Vancouver. And we're speaking to Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake on CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Esther also had a bakery. She lived above a bakery on Davie Street. Is that still there, the bakery on Davie? I don't believe so, no. I think that's gone. I didn't check into that because it was such a brief period. Uh, that they used to, they moved around quite a bit, um, and they moved bakeries quite a bit. Like there was one on West Fourth for a while, and I think they lived on West First. And you know, it was a fairly unstable life for Esther. I like the idea that food is featured in your book quite a bit, Murder by Milkshake, but it made me think of Aaron and the penthouse. How come the penthouse steak is not mentioned? You mentioned Casa Capri, but not the penthouse steak. Well, it didn't actually come into the book. I, I never heard them going there or anything, but they used to go to IAC's restaurant across the road from the penthouse, and the IAC's and the Filipponi's were cousins. So there is a connection there, but it wasn't really to the book. How many Fonsi pics did you use in the book? Fonsi is that amazing street photographer in Vancouver. Well, most of them actually were pre-Fonsi. Joe Iacy, who lived across the road from the penthouse, uh, was the original street photographer, and he hired Fonsi. And um, Fonsi worked with, and so did Castellani worked for him for a while in street photography. And then Fonzie went to the war. And when Fonzie got back, Joe had moved to Campbell River to take over the hotel. And then Fonzie hung out his shingle. So there's a really interesting kind of, you know, crossover with the, the whole Vancouver early street photography in the book as well. How many photos from René did you use in the book that he took? Uh, that he took... You know, I don't know because Janine had given me like basically all the photos that she'd had. So I'm guessing that the ones that he's not in <laughs> were likely the ones he took, but I'm not sure. She didn't know. Because you used a picture of his mugshot, but you had to credit like the National Parole Gallery of Canada or whatever. Do yeah. they own the mugshots? How come you had to have credit for a mugshot? Well, they gave it to me free, but on condition that I, I do that exactly the way that they gave it to me, which I did. So was it hard to find his mugshot, Renee's mugshot? It was part of the file. Um, one of the great things, when you get charged for capital murder, um, everything was on file in Ottawa, um, including the police reports and the transcripts of his uh, trial, which was just magical. René had an interesting life in a sense. Pre-murder, he like hung out in Campbell River, the Willows Fire. That was kind of bad. What can I say about the Willows Fire? It was kind of bad, like people died. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a difficult one because he went up to work with Frank Iacy and they were a manager and assistant manager for about a year. Now, there'd been three Willows Hotels in Campbell River, and the other two had burnt down as well. It was a, a wooden building. It was a bit of a fire hazard that had fires before. But he was out of town. He was back in Vancouver when the fire broke out. And you're right, it killed four people and destroyed the hotel. And the crazy thing, though, Janine remembers him painting this picture, this weird, weird picture 
of the, the fire, the flames and these bodies sort of coming out, shooting out of the hotel. So there was a bit of a question when I put it to this um, forensic psychologist called Heather Burke of what she thought. And she thought it was such a strange thing, a process to do that, that he might have had some uh, thing to do with the fire. But that was never proven. And it was uh, when I got the uh, inquest from Victoria, there was no question that uh, was arsenic. They said it was an accident. So... What's really fascinating about the fire is, here's kind of a precursor to Rene's crazy behavior. I mean, poisoning somebody with a milkshake from the white spot, but he took a dead dude's car? He took a dead dude's car? How did he get away with that? And some dollars. Well, he was an opportunist. He, he stole. He took things. He just He was a psychopath, basically. He just pretty well did what he wanted to do. And he only cared kind of about himself, didn't yeah. he? And that came out over and over again and, you know, talking to family and people that knew him. You know, I, I talked to so many people that worked with him at CKW and even afterwards when he got out of jail, he went back into radio after a pretty short period of time. And, you know, I asked him what he was like and everyone liked him. They also what a great guy he was, what a smart guy, what how funny he was to work with. And I'd say, well, do you think he did it? And every one of them said, oh, yeah. Do people still believe that he didn't do it? Like, does his family believe that he didn't do it? No, no. And I went into it in a very open mind. When I started to do it, I said to Janine, look, you know, I'm not going to demonize your father. And, you know, from what I see, it's circumstantial evidence. And I'm not convinced he did it. And by the end of the book, I was so totally convinced after the research that he did it. But in some ways, taking a dead guy's car and some money and being a psychopath is perfect for doing a radio show, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, yeah. The CKNW radio, and you actually have sent me a little clip here of Rene Castellani in action. What is this? clip that we're going to play. It's from him doing dizzy dialing, a whole bunch of crazy stuff. Actually, in this particular clip, I'm not sure if he's doing any dialing, but he was a dizzy dialer, which is kind of like a drunk dialer, isn't it? Well, I guess it was a prank dialer, right? You'd just prank call people, and it was like a kind of radio candid camera from the impression I get from it, just doing bizarre things like uh, calling a pet store owner and saying, look, I'm cleaning my pet budgie with a pencil eraser, is that okay? And, you know, hearing the horror and, and stuff. And, yeah, it was just um, odd. <laughs> Where did you get these clips? Was it from Colleen Hardwick? Yes. Now, they were uh, – Colleen had got them from Jack Cullen before he died. Uh, she'd looked into doing a movie about 30 years ago, 25 to 30 years ago, and had these tapes all the time. And they were another one that I'd got digitized and, uh, um, and you've got the results. So they're not very good because they were from the early 60s, but they're the only ones that exist that I've found. So here's a clip of Rene. Am I saying that right? Rene? Uh, Rene. Rene. Well, I'm going to say, well, what? The mil- Here's a clip of the milkshake murderer in action in the 1960s on CKNW radio. And just hold on for one second there. And we're speaking. Uh, who should hold on? Eve. Eve should hold on because Eve is the author of Murder by Milkshake. Done this before, this you is know? Your Hey? You know, some people... You make it sound like this is your life. Well, it, it, ooh, it's just your life? I could fix that very easy. 
I'm sure you could. You pretty well tried earlier tonight. You, you have now, the off, uh, do you know the words to this thing? I'm not too Who sure. Who cares about the words? <laughs> well, listen, do you want to... We have, uh, we have a rig here called an echo. Change, 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 change. See? Well, Is there any, any special words you want to try? It's like my mother when she sings to me oh, in, my, in my little planet. <laughs> let, let me hear your laugh on echo chamber. <laughs> uh, once again, for Jack now, let... The love, light, burning, burning. I, I'd set your head on fire if I had the match. With your eyes, those eyes that keep winking and blinking. So true. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Me call, you sweetheart. <laughs> I'm in love. I'm in love with you. <laughs> and that is the milkshake murderer, isn't it? It is. Pretty creepy, isn't it? That is an actual murderer. Because you listen to that clip, and I was like, oh, this is funny. This is great. This is like a radio guy going crazy. Yeah. But he actually murdered somebody. That does actually sound like a murderer. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yep. Like, he, he, do you think he was acting in that way when he was murdering Esther? Um, well, no. He was acting as the loving husband the entire time, doting on her, and she was, as he was poisoning her, she was going to this doctor um, several times and he would say, you know, it's so condescending. The doctor would say, oh, well, you're a bit plump, aren't you? And it's probably a diet. And he'd pat her on the head and give her an antacid. And um, then he'd sort of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, this over-doting husband is, you know, getting me out of bed for, for nothing sort of thing. And, and meanwhile, you know, he's poisoning her food and milkshakes and, and she's been blamed for her own illness. And here is another clip of the milkshake murderer. Again, we're speaking to Eve Lazarus, author of the brand new book, Eve. The brand new book available now. Where is the book available? Everywhere, hopefully now. It's been it's sold out of the first print run. They've just um, gone into second printing now. Amazing. So you can get it anywhere. And it's on Arsenal Pulp Press. That's right. And here's another clip of, uh, who was the gentleman that um, Rene was speaking to? It was Jack Cullen, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Here's another clip. I think it's kind of like a bit of the Dizzy Dialer and him in action on CITR. And this is probably like you think about 1964 or 65? This would have been earlier, I think. This would have been sort of early 60s before he was even uh, employed by CKW. He used to do all these weird characters. Um, one of them was Clay 2 from Out of Space. And I think you've got the recording of that somewhere as well. And he would um, pretend he was this alien that had come in on his spaceship. And he, he kept doing these. And then they found him so good at this stuff that they gave him these weird promotions to do like this Maharaja and here is the milkshake murderer in action the time is 25 minutes after 11 o'clock here on the Owl Prowl Jack Cullen with well listen dear now that your cage is cleaned out you can go back now yeah did you drink all the DDT no I left some for you dear oh I'm glad thanks awfully for the cyanide alright well goodbye goodbye you go to my head. Oh, this time with a scalpel. 
with a smile that makes my temperature rise. And your hair is falling too because I've cut too deep. <laughs> like a summer. Go. There be rain. Oh, lots of rain and snow and hail and everything that goes with it. <laughs> and darkness too. Well, oh, that's my favorite color, yes. <laughs> I won't complain. You can't because I'm going to sew your lips together in your vocal cords. <laughs> Don't see either because I'm going to sew your lids together. <laughs> as long as I, as long as I have you and your eyes and your ears. <laughs> You know, so I, you know, I didn't want to disturb anything. <laughs> you finally found out who did it anyway. Yeah, well, well, yeah, but it wasn't the guy I thought it was. It was probably the busy diver that did it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. Oh, well. <laughs> Good for you. I figured there was something going on. <laughs> so there we have it, the milkshake murder, Eve Lazarus. You know, I've heard that a few times, and it still gives me the creeps every time I hear that. It's, what time frame was that? Was it around 1962 and he did the actual murder in like 65? Yeah, he was working, you know, as I said, to drop into Jack Cullen's show for a few years. And he actually got hired on full time early 1964. So that clip was probably from about 62. But listen to that clip. He's mentioning cyanide. Yeah. You know, there's DDT. There's a scalpel. Sewing lips. There's some it really does sound like a murderer, and he was a murderer a couple years later. Yeah, I guess that's where maybe that's where he got the idea, or I, I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it's kind of creepy in hindsight, isn't it? When you listen to that. In the book, Murder by Milkshake, there is a lot of Vancouver history. For instance, the attic is mentioned. What is the attic in Vancouver histories? Well, it was so. Odd, because Janine had mentioned she remembered going to this place called the Attic on West Broadway with a father, and they had some kind of ownership in it. And then I started digging, and I found this whole coffee culture and beatnik thing that I never knew existed in Vancouver. And it was basically the Attic coffee house, and there was no booze. You'd go there, you'd drink coffee, and you'd listen to various acts, jazz acts or uh, whatever happened. And um, they had uh, folk singers there. I, I found the, the Claire Ozipov who opened. Um, she was a Jewish folk singer and she's still around, had a great career and was on the CBC a lot. And uh, it was a really happening place, but it, it sounds like it sort of faded out as the Beatles came and um, all of that sort of the, the change in music happened. The, the whole coffee culture just went away. But the milkshake murderer was behind that? He was a partner, yeah in one of these coffee houses. And he also was responsible for the 1967 Confederation song? Yeah. Now, that was his partner, um, Frankel, had um, come up with this folk song. And Rini thought it would be, you know, a great sort of theme song for the station and took it to his boss. And, they, yeah, it became this thing. He also was involved with the Beatles coming to Vancouver, and Janine, the daughter of Esther Castellani, who got murdered by the milkshake murderer, she also got puked on at the Beatles? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, um, yeah, so he was a broadcaster along with uh, the three Jacks, like Jack Cullen and Webster and Wasserman, 
And um, we found that sort of YouTube thing. Cullen had um, bootlegged the uh, tape of the the Beatles from CKNW and and started selling it a few years later. And now it's uh, online. But it's amazing to hear that. But yeah, Esther and uh, Janine were in the audience and there were 22,000 odd teenage and preteen girls all screaming their heads off. And they would scream so much that, um, you know, they would throw up or pass out. And one of them threw up over Janine and Janine said she, she remember spending most of the concert in the the washroom with her mother trying to get rid of this vomit. But eventually she got Paul McCartney's autograph via the milkshake murderer, but then it got burnt? Yeah, uh, after they moved in with Lolly, uh, Don, who just told her this year, actually, that uh, he was a six-year-old playing with matches. He was flicking matches at the shed and it caught on fire. And a whole bunch of stuff went up there, including the the autograph and uh, a packet of Ringo Starr cigarettes. Now, Lolly, who the milkshake murderer ran off with after killing his wife, was she at the Beatles? No. But here we have some Beatles music and actually some Renee in action, a milkshake murderer. What is a clip we're going to play right now? This is a tiny little clip we're going to hear of it. What is going on? There's like a Kit's camera ad. What is going on here? Okay, um, so... He and um, Jack Cullen were the broadcasters, and they're, they're just doing the commentary for the, uh, the Beatles concert. And um, Webster and Wasserman, I guess, are in the crowd doing the, the sort of news things. And it starts to take off. It, it just starts going crazy. And these teenage girls are, you know, jumping through the, the barricades and... Um, they were worried about a school, you know, full-scale riot of teenagers, but more worried that they'd be crushed. And so they're giving the commentary of the concert. And was a milkshake murderer employed by CKNW at this time? Yes. And he is actually commentating a whole bunch of different stuff because it's not really like a live broadcast of the actual event, like of, of the event, because they're talk, doing ads. But you were impressed that they fit in a Kit's camera ad in there. Yeah, yeah. Through all this uh, screaming and things, Jack Cullen's doing the the sponsor. But yeah, it was the, the live broadcast apparently. So here we go with the milkshake murderer in action broadcasting and talking to Jack Cullen, right? It's probably Jack Cullen, isn't it? Yes. yes it with was. Jack Cullen on Saturday, the 22nd of August, 1964. Well, really, there's the sound of the Beatles with the ah, yeah, yeah going on. Right. Pat it down a little Jack. for a minute. You're un- uh, not aware of what was taking place. Uh, Jack Webster was... Uh, saying that they've been breaking down barricades down there, and the police are pushing, and the crowds are pushing. This is why this little girl got hurt. It was the pressure of both the police and the crowd pushing up against this little girl. I'd be curious to know, too, why at certain times, certain sections of the stadium are lit up, as indeed ours was just a minute or so back. I think they've got spotter lights around, but I think it's ridiculous that they don't turn all the lights on. I mean, I think this would do a wave of all the rowdyism. I think so, plus the fact, uh, how do we know? There may be 50, 60 children right now just laying there and nobody notices them. I think uh, this is ridiculous. Somebody had a, a bad idea of turning the lights on. A light should be on for sure. Just a reminder that uh, this hour of On the Town tonight, a noisy hour it is from Empire Stadium where the Beatles are in the background on stage. And it's presented by Kit's Candlers. Nice Norm Bad with his two good stores, his fine staff, and about the best merchandise in town. And by the way, I noticed that a lot of the little kids in here have those little portable tape machines. And I know that uh, that these are sold, too, by uh, 
by Kip's camera. So it'll be a nice souvenir for the youngsters, though, and so many of them are taking pictures. So, Norm, you're on the late vehicle tonight, believe me. I wouldn't be surprised if the old devil was down there in the audience himself tonight. I noticed him. He had a little beanie made out of a pizza. In case he gets stuck, he'll eat his hat. <laughs> Let's take the mic outside the window again for just a second or two and hear just a little more of the Beatles on stage at Empire Stadium. And 20,000 cheering, mostly kids. So there we have it, the milkshake murderer, and I'm interviewing me, Nardwarda Human Serviette, Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. And I guess, Eve, that was the charismatic part, wasn't it? The Beatles. Yeah, well, that's part of it. Yeah, what an era, eh? And you are Eve Lazarus, the author of the book Murder by Milkshake. A couple more questions for Eve regarding the milkshake murderer. He was quite cocky. Like, he was quite cocky, as I mentioned. He gave his girlfriend, Lolly, his dead wife's coat, although Keith... Porteous, uh, sorry, Miss. I'm saying Keith Porteous because he was from the band Popular Front, but I think his dad, who was uh, a police inspector, called him a putz. So he was a cocky putz? <laughs> Sounds like a good description of him. But he gave his dead girlfriend, he gave his dead wife's coat to his girlfriend. Yeah, it was pretty shocking, apparently, when the... the um the family turned up at the inquest to see her wearing it. Now, she probably didn't know that it was Esther's. And also, he didn't want his own daughter to report a sexual assault. He was so self-centered. It was all yeah. about him, wasn't it? Always, always. Uh, he w- Why didn't he want to report it? Because he was afraid it would somehow reflect on his sentence, right? He was going for parole, and I think the um, the thinking was that if they knew that that had happened, they wouldn't let him out in case he tried to retaliate against the uh, the person that tried to rape her. When Esther was in the hospital for the milkshake murder, like when she was getting, nobody knew it was arsenic at that point, but Rennie would show up to the hospital wearing ho- shorts and a Hawaiian hat. Like, just, he didn't care. Did the doctors feel duped? They must have later. Because um, it was so close to getting away with it. I think that was the thing. If it wasn't for this specialist, this Dr. Moscovich, that had treated Esther through all those, you know, seven weeks in hospital while she was getting poisoned, uh, he would have got away with it. He, you know, got through the autopsy and uh, uh, had he got her cremated, it would have been the perfect murder. He would show up at the hospital not even caring, right? Just not even caring that his wife's dying. No, he would just play the sort of the loving husband and, you know, go along with it all. And three months of tests were done on her body. Three months when, when eventually when she died. And then they realized it was a milkshake murder that did the murder. Yeah, well, they found out by then, after, after they knew it was arsenic, they started investigating it and very quickly found that he was having an affair. And he did some crazy things, you know, for a smart man. Um, two weeks before Esther died, he and Lolly took out a mortgage in their newly married names. So they were telling people that they were going to get married in a couple of weeks, even though Esther was still alive at that point. And the day after Esther's funeral, he took Lolly and Janine and Lolly's son Don and they went to Disneyland. And that was a great trip, though, wasn't it? Like, Janine really loved that trip. 
Well, yeah. I mean, they were kids and, you know, that, as Janine sort of talks about it, you know, I was told that we were going on with our new life. And she said, I, you know, I had no choice. My mother was dead. And she went with it. And after he was arrested, she ended up living with Lolly for almost five years. After that, Lolly was, you know, responsible for her financially and, and everything else. It seems like you've interviewed everyone for this book. Everyone. Everyone. Did you get a lot of leads from your October 27th, 2001 blog post? Yeah, I did. Uh, actually, that really started things off. Um, I'd written a blog just with, the, after my book had come out, I'd written, as I mentioned, you know, the, the murder through the house where it happened. And I sort of did the same thing on my blog and I'd made a mistake. And this woman had um, emailed me and she said, look, you know, you've said Lolly had a daughter, a six-year-old daughter. Well, she didn't. She had a son and that's my husband, Don. And Don's been looking for Janine for nearly 50 years. Do you know where she is? And at that point I didn't. And it kind of sat there. But when I did meet Janine last year and I said, oh, you know, Don's been looking for you. You know, she got really emotional because she said, oh, my God, I've been looking for him for nearly 50 years. So this book has actually put them together. And it's one of the great things that actually came out of it. And you're Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake, speaking to me, Nardwar, the human serviette on CITR radio. And just a little background, who is the cast of characters? In case people are tuning in right now, could you go down the cast of characters? And, pe- you know, people might be wondering, who is Janine? Who is Lolly? Of course, yes. Um, Rini was married to Esther Castellani, and they were married um, 1946. They'd been married for 19 years and uh, had had a pretty happy marriage up until Lolly. They had an 11-year-old daughter in 1965. Uh, Rennie met uh, Lolly at work, the 25-year-old switchboard operator, fell in love with her. Lolly was widowed with a six-year-old son uh, called Don. Uh, there are many, many other people. Did you want me to go into any of the others? Oh, that actually comes around to Don, so that's good. And then Don went, with Disneyland, went to Disneyland with Janine, right? Yes. Yes, yes, it is. Josephine was one of her nurses. Isn't there a confidentiality, you know, for being a nurse to talk about this stuff? Did you talk to Josephine, one of her nurses? Isn't there a confidentiality because there's a hospital? You can't, you know, talk about these things? Actually, no, I didn't talk to her. That was all from the transcripts in the police report. Um, there are extensive transcripts from the trial. I got ordered the inquest uh, where they were all interviewed, um, and I had the police reports. So a lot of the conversations with the nurses and the doctors uh, are now long dead, uh, were, came straight from those transcripts. How did you get the file? Like, did you have to convince, you know, people that you're worthwhile? Give me the file. Actually, no. Um, the inquest is readily available from BC Archives. Anyone that um, dies has an inquest. And uh, they're amazing sources of information because a lot of, more information gets into an inquest than it does into an actual trial. A lot more people are interviewed, like Esther's father was interviewed at the inquest, and uh, you're getting you know, their own words, and you're getting hearsay, and you're getting just fabulous, fabulous information. So I could really sort of hear their voice um, through this. Transcripts are normally really difficult to get, but because it was a capital murder, meaning it came with a death penalty, uh, that was all in Ottawa. And I was lucky that actually Colleen Hardwick, when she was um, planning to do a movie uh, many years ago, had already ordered all of those transcripts and uh, just loaned them to me. So that 
saved an incredible amount of money as well. So I'm very grateful to her for that. How come she didn't make a movie? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm guessing that she didn't get financing. I didn't ask. But now she could make a movie based on your book. I guess she could, yes. And you are Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake. Did you interview Dr. Moscovich, Linda Ratzlaff, Alan Gillis? How many people did you interview? Barbara Tamburi? Um, no, I didn't interview any of the staff at the hospital or the bankers. Um, I don't believe they're still alive. Uh, most of the people that I interviewed uh, were people that knew uh, Rini uh, from CKNW and uh, people that knew him after that. And to fill in the gaps that I didn't know, I got professionals like Heather Burke, a forensic psychologist, the sergeant in charge of the police investigation, Bill Porteous, was dead. But it turns out his nephew, Mike Porteous, is superintendent of major crimes with Vancouver Police Department. And he knew this case really well because it was his uncle and it was kind of family law. And his uncle did such an amazing job of, of convict or getting you know, the police investigation that convicted Rini. And uh, he was able to sort of talk to me about that and, and talk to me about how it would be investigated differently if it happened today. And I could be totally wrong, but again, I think Keith Porteous, who was in a local Vancouver punk band, Popular Front, is either Bill's son or nephew or whatever. So there is a punk connection oh, as well as the Beatles. I, I think some people think the Beatles were the first punk band when they played in Hamburg. And we're speaking to Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake. At the funeral, the milkshake murderer gave out cigarettes. <laughs> like he promoted cigarettes at the funeral. That kind of, you know, he showed up to his sick wife in a hospital wearing shorts like he didn't care. At the funeral, he gave cigarettes for a promotion? Yep. Yeah, he... Um yeah, handed out the, I think it was Peter Jackson from a CKW promotion. It was very much like a show, uh, the, the actual funeral. And how come there was an all-male jury? Is it unusual when the milkshake murderer finally got put on trial? How come an all-male jury? It's an unusual. Well, his defense team thought that they'd be more sympathetic for, you know, someone that was having an affair. And in many ways, he, because it was all circumstantial evidence and the 60s were, were still pretty much, you know, we're living in the 50s values, um, he was convicted mostly because he was having an affair. I doubt very much whether he would have been convicted had they not known, had they known about Lolly. Roy Peterson is an artist, and there's some amazing sketches from the Milkshake Murderer's trial. But how come he was allowed to sketch Janine when she was only 13? Well, it was, I think it was just bizarre that Janine was allowed to give testimony. And as she says now, you know, most of it was uh, perjury. Yeah, she was told what to say. And uh, I read her back because I had the transcripts of her testimony I was reading them back to her and I would say, did you, did, was this true? Was that true? And she'd say, no, that didn't happen. So I think, you know, anyone that's giving testimony in a courtroom is fair game for an artist. Now, the milkshake murderer eventually got a death sentence, but it was committed two weeks from him, you know, hanging. Was there any inkling of this? Did he know that this would happen, that it would get off? You know, that he wouldn't pay the ultimate price? Um, I couldn't tell you. He, was, he died in 1982, and 
I, I don't know what was in his mind. I bet he was pretty relieved when he got out of it, though, two weeks before he was scheduled to hang. But did people have a sense that, you know, in two weeks, you know, everything, there were no hangings, you know, when he was convicted, did people have the sense it would n- not mean anything to be sentenced to death? Well, at that point, they were appealing the sentence. And no, I think the last hanging was something like 1961. So th- there must have been a sense that there was a good chance. But I mean, would you, how would you feel, though, if you're in jail and with a death sentence? I, I think you'd be not feeling too great about it. But there had been hanging in like four years. So how did that, you know, with two weeks from his hanging, I don't think he would have been hanged in two weeks, right? Well, I imagine they would have had all sorts of pardons and things. And again, we're speaking to Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake on CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I was also curious, Eve, Brian Slaney, how did you find him that was Renee's cellmate? Through Facebook. I did some crowdsourcing of research and uh, I went on, I've got a, a Facebook page called Every Place Has a Story and I put up a, a picture of Masquee Prison when it was uh, first opened in around 1969 and uh, just asked if anyone worked there at the time in the early 70s uh, or was a you know, prisoner there. And actually a friend of mine who lives in Ottawa had uh, known this guy, Brian Slaney, who was sent there in 1970 and put me onto him. So that was magical because he could talk to me about what was going on in the prison system and and knew Rini in there. Like you had the milkshake murderer's cellmate. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And you also learned that the milkshake murderer had a band, a Hangman Five? Yeah, apparently, yes. It came out in the um, CKW 50th anniversary that Chuck Davis wrote. And uh, he was interviewing back in the 90s, and, and these people were dead, unfortunately. So, you know, but I had Chuck's account to go on, and uh, one of the CKW guys had gone out there, bumped into Rini, and he told him about that because he was getting out within two years. He was getting out on day passes, working in the community, and going back to jail at night. Do you think if somebody did a milkshake murder today, they would get off like, you know, the milkshake murderer got off? You'd hope not, wouldn't you? I mean, it was a horrible way to die. And when I asked um, the police officers, I said, well, how did he get out so quickly? You know, he was out on day passes within a couple of years, weekend passes. Janine remembers him bringing different women uh, around to visit. Uh, Within about five years, he was back working in radio and uh, within 10 years, he was fully paroled. And um, the police uh, officer that I talked to said, well, when you look at prisoners that were in there, this guy looked like a fairly safe bet. You know, he's a businessman. He was smart. You know, he probably wouldn't do it again, I guess, if you weren't married to him. We got actually a tweet at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R, from Owen Ellis, and he says, reading it right now, it's a pretty messed up Vancouver murder. Thanks, Owen. Yeah, it is. And I didn't mention this, but I mentioned in the Evaporator song, the BOMAC sign. What happened there with the BOMAC sign? Because that was kind of like my idea. You know, he would climb down from the sign fool around with the lady, the secretary, and go back up the sign. Is that what happened? 
Well, no one ever got him. They had actually a Pinkerton guard that was on duty all night and no one ever saw him come down. So she'd actually visited and her son told me that he remembers going there when he was a young kid and they would speak. There was a a studio down at the bottom of the sign and Rini was up the top in this car. Maybe we could do a little setup. Like what was happening? What was happening? It was a promotion for CKNW and the idea was that he would live up in a car on top of the BOMAC sign for nine days or until every last car in the lot was sold. And it was this big deal. People would go past and they'd honk their horns and he'd have, you know, his washing swaying in the wind on a clothesline and food would be, you know, sent up to him um, through some kind of pulley system and there was, you know, electrical toilet up there and all sorts of stuff. And, And no one seems to remember him coming down. But where it, be- it played a huge part in the trial was when they um, chartered the arsenic through this nuclear reactor back in Toronto. It's amazing forensics that got him. Uh, they found that uh, there was a, a gap where she didn't get any arsenic and then she got a big dose. And Esther actually started getting better. She was in hospital at the time. During the nine days, he was up on top of the sign. And the day after he came down, she got really, really ill and then just kept going down a hill until she died. And we're speaking again to Eve Lazarus. It's really important, although it's not that important because the book is sold out. The book is sold out, right, Eve? Oh, no, it's not sold out, but it, it's still, it's, um, they, it, it's in bookstores still. It's just, uh, it got... Uh, sold out quite it sold quite quickly so they went to a new reprint yeah actually when I interviewed in the 90s well actually it wasn't in the 90s it was like I think probably in the 2000s Jim Rose from the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow I said hey Jim your gig is sold out tonight he was like don't you ever say it's sold out we can always add another gig we can always add another gig and so Murder by Milkshake is not sold out in any way but it's, it, bookstores still have it, yes. It's in the stores. Might even be on the ferries. Might even be on the ferries, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if it is yet, but if anyone has a sighting, I'd love to know. And is it in any prisons? Oh, that's interesting. Because a lot of times book publishers send books to prisons, you know, prisoners to read. Right. I don't know. And um, Yeah, and speaking of that, actually, the milkshake murderer... When he was um, on parole, etc., he helped at a mental health center. Mm. Did he ever feel sorry for what he had done? Like he worked at a mental health center. He denied it. He always said he never did it. Um, even uh, Janine was trying for a deathbed confession where he had pancreatic uh, cancer in 1982 and he died before she could get there. Uh, they were ex- estranged since uh, 76 So he always told everyone he didn't do it. And uh, even the trial, they tried to blame Esther's sister. He was also into CBs, wasn't he? And later on in Hardwired, a human serviette radio show, we're going to play a CB song. But he was into CBs. Rene, the roadrunner? Yeah, that was at the Abbotsford station after he got out of jail. And he had no trouble getting a job. Like, on my resume is so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And, you know, I was there when the Beatles played. And, oh, by the way, I murdered my wife. Uh, there was no problem getting a job? No, I spoke to a couple of people that hired him. Bob Singleton was the uh, guy that hired him in Abbotsford. And he also sat on the Masquerie Jail board and knew, him, knew he was in jail, knew everything about him, and had absolutely no problem hiring him. 
There's another tape, which I will not play, from 1978, but in it, he says a milkshake murderer, he is out of jail now, he's asked to do a children's program. Mm. How did that come about? Well, he played Santa Claus, actually, for the kids. Um, even after a couple of years after he was um, put, you know, given a life sentence. I, I talked to one woman that worked with him as a volunteer at uh, Community Services in Abbotsford. And, um, you know, he, he used to drive around. This is while he was in jail. He'd be out during the day and he'd work at the radio station doing promotions and he'd volunteer at various community, you know, things like the mental health and uh, various kids' outfits. They all loved him. And at one point uh, there was another guy that was a gun runner from South America that was also volunteering out of prison. And he ended up t- taking, stealing the, um, uh, the food bank money, I think, and uh, they revoked their parole. And all these letters from all these associations that uh, Rini had worked in all wrote and said, please let him out. You know, it's, he was great and all of this stuff. Just wild. And they all knew about Esther. But had he got better? Do you think he had changed? No, I think he was a psychopath, and I don't think psychopaths change. So you think he was exactly the same the whole way throughout his life? Yeah, yeah. If people got in his way, he got rid of them. Uh, if he didn't get in his way, everything was fine. And when Janine, Janine believed in his innocence right up until she was in her early 20s and used to go out and see him in jail, and, uh, and it wasn't until um, she became engaged to someone that he didn't like and could see that his grip on her was sort of slipping, that um, he started threatening her, and she got really scared. Where was Lolly in 2008? Again, Lolly was the woman that the milkshake murderer ran off with, the secretary from CKNW, after killing his wife, Esther. Where was Lolly in 2008? In 2008. Well, Lolly got married again um, about... Uh, five years after Rene was sent to jail and, and ditched him, of course, for, for the, the new guy. And um, she had uh, a stepson and her son, Don, and they moved to White Rock. Um, Don moved out as soon as he could, and they were estranged. But the last time he saw her was in Kelowna in 2008. So she is totally MIA. Yeah. The book must have got her way. Like, who came to the book release? You're mentioning Janine was there. Could have Lolly showed up at the book release? And how can somebody go missing nowadays? Well, we, when Don had seen her... Or last, should I rephrase it? How hard have you and Don looked? Well, the problem was that she'd been in a mobile home park in uh, Kelowna the last time she was spotted. So I tried calling around various mobile home parks and they won't tell you who lives there because I guess they're probably criminals. I don't know. Um, but they wouldn't tell me. Like, you know, when I'd ask for her with her married name, uh, I couldn't get any way. I tried calling um, sort of old um, folks' homes in the area to see if she'd, she would only be sort of in the late 70s, but I couldn't get anywhere there. They wouldn't tell me who was there. So I kind of struck out everywhere. And uh, as I, I found the stepson on Facebook, and he blocked me. <laughs> I've never been blocked before, and I'm not sure what that means, um, whether he kept in touch with her or was protecting her or just didn't want to know. Uh, I don't know. Is there a way to check with the government if she has passed away? Well, I checked for obituaries and death certificates, and I couldn't find anything. 
And you are again Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true Vancouver story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. You're also the author of Cold Case Vancouver. I am. All about some cold cases in Vancouver. Are police okay with old cases being talked about? Yes. Yeah, they've been really cooperative, actually. I mean, is it kind of a touchy subject, especially with the milkshake murder, you know, getting this information? Did you, have you ever had to file a freedom of info request? Uh, well, the problem with cold cases is that they won't talk to you about the details of the cold cases because they're still open. Uh, so it's much, much easier to, to get information on a case that's been closed like this one, like the milkshake murder. What about Danny Brent? The gun from the Danny Brent murder was found like 20 years after, and that was out at UBC, kind of near CITR. Yeah, it was under somebody's hedge. <laughs> for 20 years. Mm-hmm. A gun was under a hedge for 20 years. And then well, a... I guess they weren't good gardeners, were they? And the gun was still loaded? Uh, gee, I don't know. Because you were saying that the police matched the gun with the murder it had the same ammunition in it. Oh, well then, yeah, that's a good point. Then it was, yeah. What is the background on the Danny Brent murder? Because that's really tragic, and that was the beginning of Vancouver gang action, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and it was, with cold case, um, most of the, the cases that I wrote about were random killings, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And I stayed away from sort of high-risk lifestyles and gangs and stuff like that. But Danny Brent really intrigued me because it was 1954 and they were calling Vancouver the sort of drug capital of the country then. And he was a kind of an interesting guy. He worked as a bartender at the press club and everyone seems to have liked him. But he was also a drug dealer. He drove a flashy car and always had tons of money and and stuff like that. And um, they used to have a system which which intrigued me where um, someone, a runner, would go and plant the drugs under trees in English Bay and things. And then Danny would, uh, once he got the money, would give them a map to where they could dig it up which was kind of an interesting system, I thought. Uh, But it caught up with him. Uh, There were a number of people involved in in the drug business in in Vancouver, and I guess Danny was stepping on their toes. And uh, so one night after his ship finished, they went to the Mayling Cabaret. He got into the car and they shot him and uh, took his body out to UBC and dumped it on the 10th hole out there and shot him another couple of times, and that was it for Danny. And it's never been solved, the case. No, no. They think it was a couple of hitmen that were sent out from uh, Montreal, but apparently it was the first gang killing in Vancouver, which, which was, made it interesting to me. And one thing, actually, I didn't mention it, I would ask you about, but the Nick Massey situation, mm. that was really scary too. What happened there? He was a stock promoter and his wife and him just vanished. Yeah, it was Nick and Lisa Massey, and he was retired. He'd uh, been a banker with the Bank of Montreal for about 30 years. And uh, they lived in North Vancouver in a, in a pretty modest house, actually. And uh, um, But he was involved with Murray Pesham and, you know, sort of all those really colourful guys on the stock exchange. But it was never up to their level. I think always wanted to be. He was kind of living out of his, um, you know, living quite lavishly and... Uh, couldn't really afford his uh, lifestyle. And one day they just disappeared, the two of them. 
And it, they still don't know. Police still don't know whether they were, you know, sort of murdered and, and thrown in the bay or whether they, you know, are living on some desert island somewhere sipping Mai Tais. And there also was the Wise family. The Wise family. Louise Wise, yeah. Because I had heard that they never went back into the room that the murder happened. What happened with the Wise family? They never went back into that room. They left it as it was. Oh, I hadn't heard that, no. Um, she was murdered in um, East Vancouver. She was a 17-year-old girl. In fact, her, her father was a, a Vancouver police officer, so you've got to think they would have really you know, done everything they could, pulled all the stops out to try to solve it. And uh, they'd gone away on holidays, and she'd, been, uh, she'd stayed behind because she had a job. And uh, someone had got in and uh, had stabbed her to death. How does milkshake murder, murder by milkshake, fit in with the rest of the Vancouver murders? Like, how does it fit in with the rest of Vancouver murders? Like, is it well known? I wrote about it, but is it, like, how does it fit in, in the scheme of things? I think it's probably one of the most sensational, and it certainly was at the time. Like, after the books come out, people are are writing to me saying, oh, yes, we remember that. It was headlines every day, and and it certainly was. You know, I got all the newspaper clippings around there, and and it was just such a, a bizarre murder, you know, that someone could be so audacious to kill someone in this horrific way. And uh, almost get away with it. And I think just because he was this kind of larger-than-life personality, and this whole thing with CKNW and this, you know, the stunts that they used to do, and you know, radio was just um, such a, a big force back then. That I, I think there's so many elements, you know, including the Bomax sign. And you know, when I talk about this murder, the, the two things that people remember are the milkshakes and the Bomax sign, because it's kind of like this cultural icon on it thing in Vancouver. Did a milkshake murder happen anywhere else, like in the U.S.? Yeah, apparently so. There's been a, um, a couple when I was looking up the, the title to make sure it hadn't been written about before. I haven't got into details. But do you know what? You know, when I was talking to toxicologists and stuff like that, saying, you know, how hard would it be to detect today? It's virtually impossible. You have to test for arsenic, specifically test for arsenic, and it's not an easy test to do. And the beauty about arsenic is it um, mimics natural causes like flu and gastroenteritis. So normally you, you just wouldn't check for that. And this toxicologist told me, he said, you know, for every one we do catch, you know, there's probably 10 to 20 that go undetected. And, so, you, and, and you think if there, was, if their body was cremated, that it would be over? Yeah, because they wouldn't have had anything to test. What are you doing next? I love, Eve, your promo pick of you and McLeod's books. I love that pick of you and McLeod's. I think it's McLeod's books, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's kind of sad that I know it's McLeod's, isn't it? Like there aren't that many bookstores left, are there? Well, nothing like McLeod's. I don't think there's anything like McLeod's anywhere. I mean, it's just the most incredible bookstore. Did you find any information in McLeod's that was used in Murder by Milkshake? No, but I have in many other things. You know, every time you go in there, there's something really unique that comes out. Or, or, you know, you'll say to Don Stewart, hey, I'm looking for this book that was written, you know, in 1934 by some obscure writer. And he'll get a ladder and climb up one of the shelves. And there it is. (laughs) What are you doing next? What are you working on next, Eve? 
Uh, well, this has been just doing the publicity on this um, book has been a full-time job. So I've been trying not to think too much of the next one. I, there's a couple of ideas that I'm trying to, you know, squash, you know, like those, um, what do you call those things that pop up and you have to beat them with a mallet? Oh, you know what I mean? The groundhogs? Yes, yeah. They come up in the, those fun parks and then you beat them back down with a, a hammer. That's what I'm doing with ideas at the moment. But, I just want a break. <laughs> but you do have your blog. You're still posting to your blog. If people want to get a hold of you, I mean, check out your blog, right? Oh, I'm obsessive about my blog. I post every week. And it, where can people find your blog? It's uh, Every Place Has a Story and it's at my website, which is just uh, www.myname.com, evelazarus.com. Eve Lazarus. And right now, we're going to end with Aaron Chapman's Arsenic and Old Sign. Fantastic. The, uh, what can you say about this particular song? You've seen Aaron do this live, right? I've seen him a couple of times. It's just wonderful. It's um, more based on the murder. It's not factual, which is fine because it's a performance piece. Did Aaron get anything wrong? Um, yes, but I think it was intentional. I, I think he went for things that were more rhyming than than might have happened, um, and which was fine because, as I said, it's a performance piece. But uh, <laughs> it, it's there's uh, quite a lot that maybe didn't happen. I was actually going to mention one thing. Do you know the case of Emerson Dubrowski? No, I've never heard of that. He actually sadly disappeared after a butthole surfer's gig at the UBC sub ballroom. What? When was that? That was probably in about 1988 or 89. Okay, and wasn't solved? He just disappeared? No, he just disappeared. And a lot of people said the UBC endowment lands were a satanic ritual spot. And he wow. disappeared into a satanic ritual spot, the university endowment lands. So they might dig him up, in, in other words, at some point. however it works but I guess it's really tragic because that was I remember that case of him leaving a butthole surfers gig at UBC and then never returning there's been a lot of missing young men though even in the last few years like um, I run a it's a Facebook site called Cold Case Canada it's a closed group page and uh, you know when there's anniversaries of people going missing and stuff we put them up and their families often you know sort of chime chip in and talk about them and so forth. And it's actually frightening how many young men have just disappeared. I also love, lastly, lastly, I love the pictures that you take of houses. And it's amazing you throw them in the book, but it's sometimes hard to get a picture of that actual house, isn't it? Well, yeah, there's so few of them left. But in actual fact, there aren't, you know, you find houses, but what I was saying is like, some people get mad at you for taking pictures of the oh, house. Oh, yeah. I've uh, had a couple of close calls, you know, where I've been tapped on the shoulder and, you know, hey, what are you doing? And you really don't want to tell a homeowner that, you know, a family was murdered in your kitchen floor in 1956 or something. So so that's been a bit um, uncomfortable. And isn't there something for a realtor? A realtor doesn't have to reveal that somebody was murdered in a house unless you ask? Um, They have to disclose it if they know about it, but there's no requirement for them to research it. So if any realtors come to you asking for people where they have died in Vancouver? No, no. But I suggest that if you're looking for a house, ask them because, you know, they they may not have to tell you. Uh, They do have to tell you rather if you ask. 
Why should, and they know. Why should people care about murder by milkshake, Eve Lazarus? Well, I just think it's, it's so much going on there. There were so many strings for me to pull. There was the, the time period of the 60s. There was the, the whole sort of Vancouver scene of the street photography and the coffee houses and IAC's restaurant, these institutions of Vancouver. Um, it was a time where the death penalty was on the table. Um, the, the whole prison system changed, this whole idea of him getting out within 10 years and the impact on the family. I mean, that to me is so important. And, and just to know who Esther was. I mean, she was murdered. People should know her and not just him. Anything else to add at all, Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake? Oh, my God, I think we've covered so much. Um, just thank you for having me on the show. It's been a true pleasure. Well, thank you very much, Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake. Keep on rocking in the free world and do do loot do Do-do. Vancouver Broadway, 1965. The summer heat slittered and crept, and the asphalt was breaking a fever of 102. Coupe de Villes and Buicks are swimming up and down the dark street at night, floating like manta rays under the warm amber of a traffic light. There's a playbill down at the cave for Mitzi Gaynor coming soon. Man, that gal has legs from here to who hid the broom. Out on Kingsway, a street cleaner's mopping up the street. While inside the NB Steakhouse, somebody's mopping up the gravy from their plate with a slice of Wonder Bread so white you could clean a piano with it. Others are at home falling asleep, bathed in the warm light of their Indian Chief TV test pattern, asleep in the glow of their Curtis Mathis or Zenith Electra homes. Broadway's lit too, Broadway's bathed in red and blue. Ruby and sapphire neon tubes glowing ten stories high from the Bomax sign. Glowing, buzzing, and flickering at a 60-cycle hum. Standing tall at the front of the Bomac car lot every night. Pouring neon light down the street and reflecting off all the chrome of the lot. And maybe the old neon sign sizzled just a little more in that 1965 summer. Castellani was his name. Rene Castellani. A radio man from CKNW who got on top of the sign bound to stay on top until all the cars have been sold for the lot. <laughs> Folks, I'm going to stay up here until Bomax sells every car it's got. So get down here and get me off this sign. Come down and see a new Fleetwood Eldorado hardtop. Four white feet, music and heat, wheel skirts and opera lights, with a comfort tilt steering wheel with a walnut trim, and a V8 engine that purrs like a hymn. You can drive one off the lot today. Come down to Bomax on Broadway. And you could drive down Broadway and see Castellani that summer, making friends with the seagulls, and tune in AM 98 and listen to old Renee with traffic and news on the hour. And all the while, the old neon sign would stare down the street, and every car there, these two tons of iron made back when Detroit used to care. And not even the two-piece suit car salesman in the lot with their Ingledews that shine like mirrors knew that in the dark of the night... Castellani would climb down from the top and sneak away for an hour or two. 
Nobody except the boys back at the radio station he'd innocently phoned to ask if they'd fill in and play a record at the top of the hour and cover his ass. When he'd sneak away, he'd drive home and he'd find his plump wife Esther with her hair in rollers, chain-smoking Winston's, eating bonbons in bed. But on other nights, his friends noticed the company car outside the house of Miss Miller, the station's strawberry blonde switchboard operator. And as he sat there day and night on top of the Bomax sign, in between playing commercials for Honest Nat's department store, Woodward's $1.49 day, as he daydreamed out in the horizon, maybe it's easy to imagine the choice in his mind. The suburbs, his wife, the leftovers. In the marriage, he knew the honeymoon was over. Or over in Miss Miller's around nine, with a smile on her face and a bottle of wine. So he started to sneak down from the sign each night and bring home to Esther a milkshake, her favorite treat. But she never bothered to ask why her Renee was being so sweet. And slowly, Esther started to get sick, but never suspected her doting husband of any trick. And the lonely late-night coffee patrons of the night-and-day diner would never notice him. And they would never notice his halfway grin, reflecting off the arborite counter as he came in to get another milkshake to go. Esther got sick. Esther got worse and worse. Until one day they called in a hearse. And that night Esther died, one of the boys from the radio station came by to make sure Renee was okay. But Renee wasn't in tears. No, he had his feet up on the couch having a beer for the Stouffer's TV turkey dinner, laughing at some comic on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, Esther might have died without another word. Some said Renee didn't seem to grieve, and others just said he never wore his heart on his sleeve. And the neighbors began to talk over fences and coffee shops, and the coroner's hunches went to suspicions, and suspicions drew to questions. Like why two days after Esther was in the ground, he'd taken off with Miss Miller to Las Vegas on vacation. And when the police found the half-empty bottle of weed killer arsenic under Castellani's sink, when everybody knew Renee was never a gardener, never gave a damn about weeds. Renee must have felt doom when the coroner opened Esther's tomb. And when arsenic in the body was tested, he was arrested for murder. Newspaper splashed his name and called him the milkshake murderer. Renee in a black suit with his head held high in the stand said through it all he was an innocent man. And when the judgment came down, they found him guilty and hit him with a life sentence. He did his time and rarely talked to the crime, and no one came to visit him in jail. The station scraped his name off his office door. Soon no one cared anymore, and even Miss Miller married someone else and turned tail. As he sat out his years in that cell, maybe Rene Castellani thought until he died in 82. And maybe crime doesn't pay as good as it used to. Now, if you go uptown to Broadway today, now the car lot is gone. There are no more Buicks and Coupe de Ville's driving by. There are no more radio waves pulsing from there. Now big kid stores moved in, 
the only cars they're selling are toys. The Bomax sign is half covered up, but it still stands tall there. Right where Rene Castellani stayed in that summer in 1965. A freestanding charged memory with not a volt running through it. But where Rene dreamt of Miss Miller. Dreamt of a plan. Where it all began. Fueled by blood red and sapphire blue neon. Buzzing into a Vancouver night. And that was Aaron Chaman with Arsenic and Old Sign about the milkshake murder. And before that, an interview with Eve Lazarus, author of Murder by Milkshake. Now, the milkshake murder, Rene, also was into CBs. Rene, the roadrunner. So I thought it would end the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show, with a CB tune. This is Come On, Come On, CB Baby by Bob Gelant. And if there is some time, I'm going to try to squeeze in some more Beatles from Saturday, the 22nd of August, 1964. And this actually is the CKNW broadcast. So you will hear some announcers, including the Milkshake Murder on CITR Radio. CB baby Bring it on, bring it on You got me crazy Come on, come on And I don't mean maybe Bring it on, bring it on CB baby Let's talk a little sweet talk Baby Let's walk a little sweet walk Baby Give me a break and I can shake Baby Cause all I want to do is take you home while the moon is shining bright, uh huh. Uh-huh. I just wanna hear your love tonight, uh huh. So come on, come on, come on, and I don't mean maybe. Bring it on, bring it on, crazy, crazy. Early in the morning, I want your love. You got me crazy Early in the morning I want your love The sun goes down I gotta have your love Oh yeah Oh girl Oh yeah Oh yeah 